0: So when was the first time that you were old enough to ride shotgun? That coveted space in the front seat that everyone knows means you have finally made it. You are old enough to read maps, give directions, get things out of the glove box, allow your hand to fly up and down outside the window and make funny faces in the rearview mirror. Now, as long as you're the only one old enough and cool enough, it's not a problem. But when your sister finally gets old enough, Then you've got to make sure that the moment that your mom grabs the car keys or says, let's go, you yell, shotgun. Because everyone knows ties goes to the oldest, and if you ride shotgun on the way out, you get to ride shotgun on the way in. Oh, it's a terrible burden, but somebody has to do it. It's especially important to be quick with the claim of shotgun when you're in a youth group and the transportation is one of those 13 passenger vans. If you are not quick enough, if you are not loud enough, if you are not paying attention, you're going to wind up in the very last seat, which, by the way, is called the barf seat for a very good reason. Now, let's get back to our gospel. lesson. If I'm given a choice between loving my neighbors and loving my enemies, I will always choose to love my enemies. You see, I can ignore my enemies. I can delete them from my social media accounts. I uh, can go places and just make sure that I'm not going anywhere where they might be. And by the way, if they're my enemies, I know that they are the enemies of my friends, which means I can say anything I want about them and not worry about getting in trouble. When Jesus says, love your neighbor, the first thing that comes to mind is, it depends on which neighbor you're talking about. I'm prepared to love a neighbor who is not too needy, who always agrees with me, who loans me whatever I want and is not upset when I don't return them right away. I can love a neighbor who's a lot like me in the good ways and not at all like me in the not-so-good ways. Perhaps the greatest challenge is, I expect everyone, including God, to love me because, let's face it, I'm so lovable. But I'm not so sure anybody else is as lovable as I am. And so when it comes to Jesus, that creates a problem for me more than it does for them. Frederick Buechner in his book Whistling in the Dark said, If we are to love our neighbors before doing anything else, we must see our neighbors with our imagination as well as our eyes. Like artists, we must see not just their faces, but the life behind and within their faces. Love is the frame that we see them in. Every relationship both gives and receives power from the other person. It's not always good or bad. It's just part of that fabric that all relationships are made out of. Every relationship has expectations, spoken and unspoken, known and unknown. And with those expectations, you either give or take power. Now, in the best relationships, okay, the power is balanced by trust. Trust changes the focus of the power. Instead of power over, it becomes power to In other words instead of me having power over you we now have power too and then we can fill in the blank so why is this important well power creates but power also destroys and rarely do we fully understand power spider-man's uncle said with great power comes great responsibility but the truth is even a little bit of power comes with great responsibility because we have no idea what even our simplest and smallest choices and actions will do until it's too late many of us are fond of saying you know if I was king or queen or you know if they would only let me be in charge and deep down we probably do want the right thing we want to make a difference we want to help people but why is it that we think that we know more than everybody else that that we should be chosen above everybody else that our plan our way of doing things is best I want you to think of your closest relationships What's the level of trust? Do you have power over them, or do they have power over you? Every relationship is built at least on one level of need. If there is nothing I bring to the relationship, or if there is nothing that they bring to the relationship, then really there isn't much of a relationship. My doctor has power over me. The police officer that passed me on the H1 today, he has power over me. Um, The President, Congress, the Supreme Court, they all have power over me. The people who make my favorite kind of tea, Uh, the farmer who provides hamburger, the woman crossing the street really, really slowly this morning, and the child who's crying, they all have power over me. But I also have power over them. And the question is whether we can find a way to turn that power from power over to power to. Back when we were allowed to get closer than six feet to each other, one of my favorite teaching tools was to go into a room before everybody else got there and put a big X on the floor and put it in a place that nobody could see it really clearly. When everybody came in, I said, all right, we're going to talk about power today. And I said, I just need a volunteer. And they would walk up, and we link fingers. And then I said, all right, now, this is a game. We're going to play the game to find out which one of us has power. I said, all right, start pushing, and whichever one of us pushes harder or is better at it, So they start pushing, but I give in. I let them push me wherever they want to go. At first, they're a little hesitant, but then when they realize that I'm going to put up no resistance, they start pushing harder. And you can see the smile on their face. They can't believe that they're able to move somebody as big as me as easily as they are. So after we've danced around the room a little bit, I finally say, all right, stop. We unhook fingers and I say, all right, where was the power? And they go, well, obviously with me, you weren't providing any resistance. I I couldn't believe it. Obviously you were letting me, but but it was okay because I had the power. And then I say, look down. And when they look down, there's that X on the floor, right where I wanted them to go. And all of a sudden they go, oh, because they realized that even though they were the one pushing, looking like they were in control, I was the one who determined exactly where we were gonna wind up. And then about one second later, they also get this look on their face, wondering how many times someone feigning powerlessness has actually got them to do exactly what they wanted them to do. We are two weeks away from Easter. If you've been following the gospel lessons, you know that things are going pretty good for Jesus and the disciples. The get-behind-me-Satan thing? Well, it's behind them. More people are following Jesus. People are getting healed. I mean, the crowds are wild no matter where Jesus goes. They are lined up day in and day out because, let's face it, no one, no one has ever come and been able to do what Jesus does. Now, the religious leaders, they're getting madder and madder. And a few religious leaders, they're actually starting to break ranks. Even if they're coming to Jesus in the middle of the night, they're starting to realize, you've got something that I want. Now, if you were in investing, if you were looking at investing, Jesus, Inc. is something that you would seriously consider because it looks like it's going to go big time any day now. Edwin Friedman wrote about family systems, how they work, how they get broken, and how they can get fixed. If you have a few minutes later today, look up his theory on self-differentiated leadership. It's really not all that complicated, but look it up because it might help you with some things. See, boiling it down, Friedman advocated a non-anxious self as opposed to an anxious non-self that promotes integrity and prevents the disintegration of the system that the person is leading. Simply put. A great leader is non-anxious and promotes integrity and is careful not to tear the system they are leading apart. Makes sense, right? All right, back to things going really well for Jesus and his disciples. Uh, Jesus must have failed his course on leadership at the seminary. Right when everything is going great, he turns to the twelve and he says, I got to go to Jerusalem, suffer, be crucified, and killed, which was so shocking that I doubt that any of them really heard the part where he says, and then three days later, rise again. Jesus takes everyone's anxiety level up to 100. You can feel the entire system coming apart at the seams, and the result is all of them go into survival mode. Jesus overhears an argument about which disciple is greatest. The disciples are probably arguing over who's going to take over the ministry when Jesus is dead. Their emotions are raw. Peter got angry, and he said, Come on, Jesus, we left everything for you. And Thomas, in a moment of resignation, goes, Yeah, we might as well go with him to Jerusalem and die with him. And the Jewish leaders, they're arguing about a woman who's been married seven times, and they want to know whose wife she's going to be in heaven, which just proves that they don't have a clue what's going on. And then there's James and John. While everyone else is panicking, they say, Quick question, Jesus. Can we have positions of authority on your right and your left in heaven? Now, as hockey great Wayne Gretzky said as he was quoting St. James, you miss 100% of the shots you don't take, i'm not going to judge their motives i can think of a dozen reasons why they would ask that question but that doesn't mean i know why they asked it think back to sunday school what did you learn when things are coming apart in your life when things aren't going well what do you do you run to jesus right you always run toward jesus i have no idea if this question was something James and John, otherwise, by the way, known as the Sons of Thunder, kind of gives you an idea what kind of people they were. If they've been talking about this since they first signed up to be disciples, or if this was a spur of the moment, I got no idea what else to say. But um, you know what? Since you're about to die, and chances are we're going to be right behind you, we might as well at least have the front seats when the bus goes over the waterfall. We can at least ride shotgun. And by the way, Jesus, don't forget, we asked first. I don't know about you, but often when I'm in a crisis, when things are falling apart and there is little, if anything, that I can do about it. In other words, I have no control, no matter how much I want to, over what's happening. I rearrange the deck chairs on the Titanic. In other words, I do silly, little inconsequential things that causes everybody around me to say, what are you doing? Do you have any idea what's going on right now? My response is yes. I know exactly what's going on right now. I also know that I have no control over it. Like all those rides at Disneyland that have steering wheels, but you can turn them all you want. It's not really gonna take you wherever you want to go because it's already determined where you're gonna wind up. So I've chosen to bring some normality to my life. And as inconsequential as it may seem, by doing something I have control over, it calms me down, which gives me an ability to see better. What do you do when you're stressed? I'm not talking about a little bit of stress, I'm talking about a lot of stress. When control is taken away from you, how do you react? James and John know the other disciples are looking for the back door. And while they're distracted and looking for the back door, that's why they cry out, shotgun! If they're all gonna go over the waterfall, they might as well be in the front seat for the best view. Now the problem with planning something, and it doesn't matter if it's your life, your business, or a vacation is that all of your plans are two-dimensional, but your life and the world is not two-dimensional. It's three-dimensional. Proverbs 16.9 says, A man's heart plans his ways, but the Lord determines his steps. Or, as my daughter Katie prefers the paraphrase in the Thomas Rhett song, You make your plans and you hear God laughing. James and John were two-dimensional thinkers. The ministry is over so they might as well grab front row seats but god isn't even limited to three dimensions in fact god exists in at least 11 dimensions yeah i know it's mind-boggling which is why life is so interesting but more importantly why even when everything doesn't look so good from our perspective there's always hope because god isn't limited by our perspective or our dimension Jesus has a classic reaction to James and John. He said, you silly disciples, you have no idea what you're asking. James and John, and by the way, in another gospel, their mom is right there. They come back with, oh yes we do, we know exactly what we're asking. And Jesus says, no you really don't, but you will eventually. And that's when the other disciples wake up from their Jerusalem, we're all going to die trance. They suddenly realize James and John called shotgun, and it was not fair. It makes them look bad, like they don't understand, or maybe that they're afraid, or that they don't have in mind the things of God, but rather the things of themselves. Which, by the way, all of it's true, but that doesn't, shouldn't matter right now. And the twelve get locked into a, you know what, if anybody's going to ride shotgun, it should be me, because I deserve it more than any of you. We need to go all the way back to Transfiguration Sunday, that mountaintop experience. Peter, James, and John getting to hang out with Moses and Elijah and see Jesus in all of his glory. When it was over, Jesus said, you know, we got to go back down. Peter says, no, we don't. I'll build some tabernacles, make some peanut butter sandwiches. This is going to be great, Jesus. It is marvelous up here. Jesus says, no, the people down there need us. This is why I've come. And this is why I called you to walk with me. That's three-dimensional thinking, not just the moment or the problems or the pain, but the bigger purpose, the bigger reason for everything. Jesus turns to the disciples and he says, whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you must be the servant of all. You could hear the hot air coming out of the I'm better than you balloons the disciples were all carrying around as they were campaigning for themselves. The Gottman Institute did some research on relationships that survive, And when they were done, this is what they discovered. When two or more people are facing incredible stress, over-the-top challenges, like your boss saying he's gonna suffer, die, and get buried in a tomb, the one factor that almost always ensures the relationship will survive is if they turn toward one another rather than turn away from one another. You see, the easy route is always to turn away. To play the, I get to ride shotgun because I'm better than you card. We might be going over the the waterfall, but I'll have the best view. James and John turned away from the other apostles. Who, by the way, were in the process of turning away from them. They all forgot not only who they were, but why they were there. Why Jesus called them in the first place. It wasn't about getting the award for being the best disciple or getting to ride shotgun as the ministry goes over the waterfall. That is two-dimensional thinking. And Jesus and heaven and the cross and eternity are beyond three-dimensional thinking, which is why instead of being scared or worried, this moment actually should be filled with excitement and anticipation. Yeah, Jesus, we see what's going on. We see that it's getting darker. We can't wait to see what you've got in mind because we know that's your specialty. When everything is dark and hopeless, nothing's impossible with you. Jesus reorients the disciples. Son of man didn't come to be served, but to serve. And if you really want to be great, then learn to take care of people. Now, as we get closer to the cross and Good Friday and COVID-19 and whatever else is going on in our life, Jesus reorients us as well. He turns us not away from one another, but toward one another. He turns us not away from him, but toward him. He says, hold on to me and hold on to one another. We serve Jesus by serving one another. We reach out to the least and the last and the lost. We live out our calling. We do what we do best and we pray each day that God will use us to do whatever needs to be done, even if at times we think it's below us because there's a lot of pain and hurt and anger and sin in this world. And if God can use us to turn some of that around to make a difference in somebody's life, that's the best we could ask for. We were taking off from a gravel runway in Kivalina, Alaska. Now, we had a full load. Weather was not great. The twin-engine Navajo was built for this, but one rock into the propeller or failure to get up enough speed and our trip would end before it actually started. Now, I usually flew with Dan up in the right seat, the co-pilot seat. No, I'm not a pilot, but I got to wear the headset. I even occasionally got to fly. I got to look really cool, like I belonged up there. Yeah, and uh, that day, that day, sitting on the end of the gravel runway, Dan turned to me and he said, Mitch, I need you to get as far back in the plane as you can get. That way we can get the nose up quicker. That way we won't have to worry about the rocks dinging the propeller. But for that to happen, I need the tail to be heavier than the front, and so I need you to go as far back as you can. No headset, no looking important, no riding shotgun. Instead, I would be so far back in the plane that it would just be me and the cargo. It was there, by the way, that I discovered my spiritual gift of getting a plane off the ground quicker. Serve Jesus by serving one another, even if it means flying all the way back with the cargo. In the days and weeks ahead, Jesus says turn toward one another. But first, turn toward him. Serve one another. Serve him. Look up Luke 14.10 this week, by the way. It's a beautiful passage. Yeah, it's one that's a little scary, but I think you'll get to understand what Jesus meant. That's Luke chapter 14, verse 10. It's great advice for us in these last days of Lent. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.